All right, so chapter 11, Culture of Babylon. I find this one probably one of the hardest ones to really talk about in, in groups because there's a lot of wide opinions on interpretation of, of how this plays out and everything. But let me pose the devil advocate question first and, and kind of get us started off. So uh, true or false, if you're not growing all of your own food and living off of your own land, are you in Babylon? Yes or no? <laughs> How would you answer that question? Hmm. Guess I'd kind of say I, yes. Yeah, as a non-grower, I'm trying, <laughs> but I would say yes. I would say that we are in the trap. Yes. And um I love that we can look at where we're at and envision through much of the words in this chapter where the ideal is and I loved this chapter I thought that it was the twin sister uh, in some regards not in all regards but certainly linked to our chapter nine nature cult discussion was it that one I can't remember now mm -hmm. but there were some no, it was the one on mammon. This, there was something about this one that really um, it just helped me define some things that I had been thinking about in my mind. And I just, the whole thing is highlighted now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I have a lot underlined and marked. So along those lines, if you're not growing your food, are you, would you say, are you living in Babylon? Is that the way you worded it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I might not have worded it the greatest, but yeah, something along that line. Okay. So um, I was thinking maybe what you said was, are we partaking of Babylon? And um, I've been working with a doctor and uh, we had a, a class a couple nights ago and he was just going on and on. These are the things you don't need in your food. And he had a whole list. And one of them that he just hates is glyph glyphosate. Glyphosate? Glyphosate. Yeah, yeah which is otherwise known as Roundup, right? Right. <laughs> and he goes, if it's not organic, you're going to be getting that. Um, and so it just, it just makes me think like when we garden, I don't use any I don't use anything in my garden and my daughter is allergic to every fruit and vegetable to the point she needs an EpiPen huh. and it's kind of weird it just started out with one but she can't even eat organic food fruits and vegetables um but she can eat mine mm. and it makes me wonder if the organic really what they're doing to the organic is it really organic and I know she worked for a guy in our ward who ended up being in the bishopric, who had a, an organic orange orchard. And he had a shop where he sold organic food, but he'd go to the international market and just buy regular food and put it out as organic and charge <laughs> prices for it. Yeah, and that industry saying, is not regulated very well. And when they say organic, yeah, you're probably getting less pesticides than the normal crop but there's right. still organic farmers are still putting certain pesticides on it that are still regulated organic 
Right. Another thing to consider too is that um, the glyphosate has become such a uh, poison and such a problem that it's now in the air. We're breathing it into our lungs. We're not just ingesting it. And, and so when it rains, it settles into the soil. So there really is no such thing as organic any longer. Everything has glyphosate, including our bodies. There's certain supplements you can take to, to uh, more rapidly pee it out. Um, but the best you can do is your homegrown. And I know that this is probably a word some of you have heard of, but it is just so incredible. There was a man, I think he's passed away in Australia, that was concerned about the hunger in the world and what the poor people suffered. And he came up with a concept that people are probably more familiar with now called permaculture, which literally is in a way it's almost disaster proof because you're creating built-in redundancy in your food and in your water systems. Uh, soak and sink is one of the concepts where you are creating swales on your land so that it captures your rainfall. You're not losing your resources. You are not taking your bags of leaves and grass clippings, if you even have lawns, and putting them out in the garbage. Those are your resources on your land. When you, when you institute those permaculture principles, you don't even have to buy bags of fertilizer. You don't have to buy anything to put into your soil because your soil top down, you don't even till it because that actually destroys the mycelium, which is like the internet of the plants. It's the little connections, the way plants communicate with each other. And it helps to the plants to take up nutrients. The trees on the land, which create shade, build fertility because they draw up the minerals. Basically, it's mimicking nature, which is mimicking God. So you're learning how does God's system work? Let's create the system. In the Middle East, they actually have created oasises of fertility without relying on rainfall. And in another location in Arizona, they changed it to a micro, it's now a different microclimate just because of the trees, just because they work with nature. They can walk away from those properties. They've done that and come back years later and the food is still being produced on that land. They wanted to test to see if it really, really, because you know, forests have a robustness. They know how to, to take care of themselves. There's nobody out there trying to take care of them. And so the whole idea of the permaculture is that each community, each person uh, grows what they can on their land and then shares it with the rest of the community through bartering, Mm -hmm. buying and so each community is completely independent and has no dependence at all on the larger you know what are there three or four big companies that control everything no dependence on it at all they become completely self-sufficient so it's one that, of the most exciting things to learn about and that's what I was saying is by not growing our own food, we literally are partaking of Babylon. And we're dependent on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So we have fruit trees. You made me feel a little better, Lisa. We have a half an acre. <laughs> in just one side of our house, we have 11 trees. <laughs> you can do a lot with a half an acre. Oh, yeah. And but and our other problem is we're on a hill, and so the other side of our yard is sloped. We had a sinkhole, and we filled it in, and it looks like it's happening again. I don't know. I don't know what we're gonna do. And I would love to garden up there, but I just don't know how we can right now. But we have planted fruit trees. We have six fruit trees up there. Um, so we just have this little area. For our fences alongside our house and then our driveway comes around it's small but i've got we've got blueberries we don't have acidic soil so they're in pots and we add the acidity um we have tomatoes green beans uh squash we have yet to be able to grow any zucchini here oh. usually figure giving them away <laughs> can't figure out why we can't grow zucchini but we do have zucchini again and yellow squash and peas and onions and garlic and green beans I think I said that jalapenos but we'll see last year we got nothing I think it was too hot nobody got tomatoes last year it was too hot so they're all planted now we'll see keeping our fingers crossed because I feel this anxiety that we don't know how to garden here the seasons are so different here like we have to start planting in January pretty much mm -hmm. um February and it's so different than places we've lived before Idaho Eight. Colorado Eight. yeah it's in South Texas you had to plant in September winter was your growing season and so it's just been different and I just have this anxiety that we that we're not sufficient yet yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead, Cameron. Oh no, go for it. <laughs> well, I was just just this conversation reminds me of this uh part in the chapter um that stood out to me because um it is I, I think this became really apparent just with the COVID thing, you know, how that started <clears throat> kind of showing us our vulnerability, right? um in this whole system but it just the on page 43 towards the top when he says babylon's massive people remain out of touch with their life source rendering them vulnerable to catastrophe the greatest height to which babylon attains is thus also its lowest point of stability for when through some unforeseen divine intervention a single stone jars from its base the entire structure collapses and i just think that yeah, like I I'm sure we all kind of have that mm. that draw to be self-reliant and see the see the see why that is important. But but oh my goodness, it you it's it's challenging like to see even when you are of that mindset and you're really trying and stuff, like it's 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 really hard to untangle yourself completely you know at least yeah that's my experience <laughs> trying yeah so another side of that is i mean it's just cheaper to buy food than it is to grow yeah. it and oh absolutely and babylon has everyone working so much and yeah. paying taxes to pay taxes and um what, we're, 
literally slaves, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We are so, we are just completely like, in bondage. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's cheaper to buy it. And I grew up, I always sold my, I even sold my wedding dress, but once I got married and had kids, it just was harder for me to sew. And it's just cheaper to sew. The fabric's expensive, you know, and it's just cheaper. And so in that way, we've been ensnared in Babylon that it's just easier and cheaper. Yeah, it's cheaper to buy fast food than to, if you go buy a, a good meal with just real food, it's really expensive. Yeah. And it takes a lot of time to prepare. It takes a lot of time, yeah. Yeah. So what about that is idolatrous? What is Babylon in, depending on other people? Like, is it bad to, to be working and uh, uh, trying to provide for your family when you don't have your own farm and, and things like that? And like, what about that could be considered idolatrous? Or what does Zion actually look like? Um, as we've read from this chapter and stuff, I, I find it just such an interesting concept that many of us, even many like in book clubs and, and stuff who are trying to, to learn and stuff, this is a, a hard topic to broach a lot of times. I think we just need to make some effort to do it. Um, like even if you just have a small space, you can grow up, you know, you can trellis and get those hog panels and bend them. And that's what I've done. All sorts of stuff up. So you just have to put in the effort and, you know, let go of your other Babylon things that you do in that other time. Like one thing that I see with my family is all the sports they drag their kids to and think what they have to do. They're, they get to those sports and then, you know, Sundays when the tournament is, well, last weekend it was conference. They had to go to state wrestling and they didn't go to conference. I mean it's just a trap everywhere you look so i just think if you ask me what i hate in the world the most i would tell you money i hate money you've said and that. and i think that that satan's economy is money well he and says so, that in the temple he will rule with that mm -hmm. yeah so getting off of Satan's economy and going onto God's economy, which I don't know if we fully understand. Um, and I, you know, I've told you before that I think we'll go through a time like the children of Israel learning to rely on the Lord. And I think that's kind of God's economy, knowing that the Lord will provide. And yet there's this balance where you can't just rely on the Lord. You have to how much are we taught to be self-sufficient, right? And the Lord loves effort. He loves work. So we need to work. And it's finding out that what that balance is and what that is for each one of us in working. Mm -hmm. um, and then relying on the Lord. Yeah, I love this paragraph. Uh, again, they're on 43, because that's the one I was going to talk about. And Amy quoted it. And then just a couple paragraphs down from it, where the Old Testament examples show us that a structure, uh, yeah, that the structure of being stable, self-sufficient, growing your own kind of thing, um, can weather most storms, endure most attacks, and quickly repair or rebuild itself. 
Um, even when the people must flee temporarily into the wilderness, their link to the land provides them with the greatest maneuverability, uh, knowing how to, to grow and uh, adapt to any kind of circumstance. Whereas, can you imagine taking, let's say, the city of New York, that's an easy example, right? Like, <laughs> taking those people who have never worked the land and putting them in a, a, a what is it, it's the acronym, the SHTF scenario where uh, they have to grow their own food or else die. And, and it's, wow, you know, like I, I'm so grateful. I don't, I didn't grow up as a farmer or anything, but I know how to put a seed in the ground and try to take care of it to some degree. I might not be able to, to live very long, but um, it's very interesting how we really need to kind of break down into our most basic elements and connect again with creation, with nature, in order to, to actually survive, um, to, to kind of recognize our daily breath is given from the Lord and not grow up thinking that chicken nuggets are just manufactured, <laughs> that they don't come or from- Or that picking your own fruit is going to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, this comes from a tree somewhere halfway across the globe. Like, uh -huh. and, very interesting and this, time, this time of year you always see funny things where people are like quit doing easter eggs you're killing all the chickens like they don't even they don't even know they don't what even they yeah yeah it's just so funny and i i was just talking to a friend i, I can't remember who it was and she said, I'm afraid that when everything happens, that those in the third world countries are going to be better off than us. And I replied and said, that's exactly what happened with the Emancipation Proclamation. When the slaves were freed, they had skills. Mm -hmm. They could take care of themselves. It was the slave owners that were at a loss and didn't know what to do. They yeah. couldn't work the land. They didn't know how to cook. They didn't know. They didn't know anything. They had no skills. Yeah. And look so, at the history of the earth, like how many years and, and millennia have people worked the land and everything? And then we live in this cushy little bubble where everyone has their one specialty, their one industry, and then we all have to do this trading. I mean, yes, it makes for an easy lifestyle, but at the same time, it then severely limits our, our ability to survive given certain circumstances when they- Right, it puts up. us into a place where we're really- compromised mm -hmm. yeah. even though it's convenient we are actually endangered and compromised in a situation that all of us are so extremely vulnerable because yeah. of the way the system has been set mm -hmm. up yeah like but let's just go ahead I was just going to say, like, take a look at the one example of toilet paper, right? The the toilet paper shortage of, of 2020, which was highly fake and, and jumped up. But we rely so much on our indoor plumbing that we, we have no idea how to, to go out and dig a latrine or use an outhouse or whatever. And without toilet paper, then we're like, oh, no, what are we going to do? And uh, like the the bidet system really took off and had a surge there I, I it was probably manufactured from them honestly <laughs> but um like we have so many different things where the, that one commodity if we don't know how to to use that one or how to produce our own of that one commodity then it's like whoa like how many of us know are super reliant on electricity and how many of us know how to generate our own electricity I have no idea how about the internet. How reliant are we on the internet? Yeah, when you, can, I wanted... when you can't Google it. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I wanted to say also that our ease of life depends on others' unease of life. Mm-hmm. And in a way, our ease is sucking the lifeblood out of others. And when you look at just, you know, the clothes that are so cheap, as I said that, I was thinking in my head of all the child and slave labor that happens in China to make our clothes cheap. Like we like the cheap clothes, but do we realize where they're coming from? I've actually thought on that a lot. And I think that's because like, you know, a lot of the, how the scriptures will talk about um, essentially condemning us for slavery, for murder, for this and that. And I've had this thought of, you know, I'm like, well, who, how, how, you know, then people aren't, people aren't enslaving people. People aren't murdering people, at least like good people. Right. But yet we support it mm-hmm. through our money. You Even know, our food industry is slave yeah. labor. Yeah. And so I, I, I just like, I think, you know, maybe it doesn't look like, um, it, you know, at the, during the Israelites time and, and throughout history, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't look like that. We don't have a slave in our home, but yet we are with that money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the ways so, we vote every day is what we spend our money on. We're actually voting. It's a very powerful thing that all of us do every day. One of the things that stood out to me is how Abraham languages this uh, addiction to Babylon or this relationship to Babylon, which, you know, we're, we're just part of it, is an intoxication. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, when you're in the phase where you're enjoying the fruits of Babylon to the point that it's intoxicating. And numbing. Yeah then there's that inability to be aware and to see at that point because you are intoxicated. He says, as a law unto itself, Babylon tyrannizes and enslaves, but people don't discern what, uh, don't discern it for what it is. In other words, they don't even see that they are actually enslaved. They don't even. They think they live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Yeah, Yeah. living the American dream. (laughs) And that's that. uh, So as you're like, you know, that question before something about like, I don't know, just us being in Babylon is the idolatry, you know, to work and whatnot. And and I've and I, and I think so much of it is. I think most of our professions are idolatrous and, and I think that is, I think that's a part of the awful situation that uh, Marana is, is inviting us to see is like just how entrenched we are in this system and how, and the slavery of it. And because it is more than just learning how to grow your own food, right? Like, I can't build furniture or I can't like all these, there's like millions of industries. And, and that's where we start. We can start envisioning maybe what Zion looks like is just that, like, we're not meant to necessarily master every skill, every trade, but yet 
it's a it's a community of of you know righteous commerce and trade and 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 this kind of thing right like where it you know of course a lot of these luxuries of ours you know probably go the wayside but like but it's 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 going close to home to your neighbor to work together you know and um and but but again that awful situation is we can't even even if we wanted to get a community going we can't like we are enslaved to our government to to regulation to taxes to all these things that keep us from truly being able to do that so it's like we we are at this place where the only way that can happen is to just plead for the return of the savior you know and and to be able to to establish Zion and anyways just recognizing what has to be destroyed in order to actually live that way which you know we know it's going to happen yeah so very interesting Um, I I had an interesting experience this week we met with someone he just wanted to talk to us about money and Kurt and I both talked about what our perceptions of money is. And, and I told him, I, you know, I hate money and I just want to live in a Zion community. I want us to have, you know, we look at the book of Mormon and they lived together and all things were in common, but they were prosperous. And then once they got prosperous, then they started having classes. Right. But I was just explaining, that's what I want. Well, the next morning, the Bible project video came up and it was a podcast called God and money. Did you see it, Cameron? Yeah, You're kind I, of I just laughing. Wanted to watch that this morning. Was <laughs> it amazing? And so I'm going to put the link in. Oh, good. It was amazing because the whole premise was what well, these two guys, one, all he wanted was money and how can I get more money? And he just saved, save, save the other guy he wanted money, but he spent all his money. They, their budget was like a thousand dollars a month to eat out. And they ended up meeting and they, um, at, wasn't it at Harvard business school mm-hmm. and they, um, ended up doing this, this, uh, project together. And they read this book that said, you don't have to pay 10%. They both paid 10%. And I thought, wow, as members of the church, we have it all wrong. Cause we think, okay, look how much I'm paying for tithing. And we pat ourselves on the back. And they started interviewing people and found out that the really prosperous people gave, they worked not to have money, but to give it away. Mm-hmm. And that I thought, I know we've already talked about money, but in this one, we're kind of having to talk about money again and, the, and Satan's economy versus God's economy. And it was amazing and just started my brain thinking, this is what we need to be doing, not how can I work and get more, mm-hmm. but how can I work to give more? Mm-hmm. Well, that goes along with that scripture of like, seek not uh, for riches, or I'm probably combining some, but essentially there is scripture that backs that mm-hmm. up of like yeah. seeking not for your own. But yeah, if you're, if you do pursue money, let it be to help others right like that but how many of us think i have to make the money and be rich so i can give the money and these aren't just these are just 
regular people that maybe aren't wealthy, they want to make a hundred thousand dollars a year, but they give 50 away and they live very frugally. So, you know, whatever, I'm just making up numbers, but they live so that they can give, they work so that they can give, not so that they can get gain. Can you imagine a world where every person wakes up and they're on their way to work, wherever that may be, maybe it's in your home, maybe it's outside or whatever, but your whole purpose is, okay, I'm going to make $80 today for so-and-so or for this cause. Like you work for others. Like imagine the effect that that would have on our work days, on our attitudes while we are doing our labors and things. If we are genuinely have somebody in mind while we're doing it, uh, whether it's the Lord himself or whether it's a specific individual um, that uh, is in need and, and you're going to to donate half of your 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 gains that day to that person for that or or whatever. Like I can only imagine like this is what's popping in my head of like, huh, I, I'm working all wrong. <laughs> I, I'm working to, to gain it so that I can then wisely spend it later or whatever. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll give away, you know, like you said, the, the 10%, whatever, but with every day. And then you do your fast offerings and you pat yourself on the back and you're like, oh, we yeah. have it right. And we don't, we don't have it right after listening to this. And they ended up writing a book called God and money. And it changed both of their beliefs on money and that it's more a resource, not something is to hoard. Is this the video you shared that you're talking mm -hmm. about? Yeah. Okay. It's that a podcast. Amazing. There's nothing to watch. It's yeah. just, but um, it was on YouTube and it was really, really good. It was really good. Cool. I so, love that we can learn so much from other faiths. Yeah, exactly. That, that Bible project is so inspired. <laughs> Holy cow. I they know. I watch all those. They're great. <laughs> mm-hmm. I used to feel like, is this okay? And then Cameron, you said it was okay. So I did it. <laughs> but, All of our any, traditions, right? That yeah. we have to just try to free ourselves from. Yeah. Well, you have to any, take those sometimes, huh? Anything that brings about good and invites the spirit, right? Yeah. Right. By their fruits. <laughs> yep. Just to kind of piggyback on some of the comments that are being made, I, I have a feeling like somebody in this group will know who I'm talking about. I just can't remember. I'm not connecting with who they are, but it was a family who decided to rather than do a vacation to pleasure themselves, yeah. to make it a service vacation where every day they didn't know who they were going to serve or what the Lord was going to bring their way, but they would find opportunities to help communities, to help people. Isn't that from the message? Mm -hmm. I yeah. can't remember. I read that I book. Very, I thought, very beautiful. Wasn't there a conference talk within the last couple of years too, of someone giving a similar experience? Like no. It. no, I'm gonna have to go research all the <laughs> I, I don't remember. I, I don't even know where I heard it, but I remember being so touched. And the man said <laughs> how much it changed his teenage son, and it's the message how much joy it brought to them as a family. Mm -hmm. It just woke them all up. Yep. That was they went to California and they were cleaning the beaches. That's the one. That's it's the, the message one. by okay, Lance Richardson. You. 
And they started cleaning the beaches and people were like, what are you doing? And they're like, we're on vacation. We're from Idaho. We're here cleaning the beaches. And they all started help cleaning the beach. And they would go, actually, after I read that, that summer, I took my kids for a, a week or so, and we would go do things like that. Mm -hmm. so I love that. My dad, when we, he used to take us um, up into the mountains, hiking in the Eastern High Sierra he always would tell us we leave this pristine wilderness better than we it was when we yep. came out. So we would always fill our backpacks going out with whatever other people had discarded along the path. So I always loved, loved Somebody that. Somebody needs to go to Mount Everest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have been watching Mount Everest videos. I don't know why I'm so, I just am drawn to them, but. They leave so much garbage up there. Yeah. Including dead people. Well, they can't get those down, but they can can't take their garbage back out. They're frozen. They have to put that in their backpack to go up. They could put it in their backpack to go back down. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. So along that line of like the Lance Richardson, something that was very interesting. So uh, we did it in our, our book clubs a while back. Uh, the um, They yeah. saw our day. And he shares a tidbit of that vacation thing. But um, the reason that he went on the vacation to begin with was because of all of the things that he was learning from like the Hopi cultures and, and all of these different people where um, their prophecies when uh, all of a sudden I, uh, what's his name? The Hiawatha guy. And what's the guy that came? I forget his name. Anyway, uh, pretty much John, the the beloved, came to him and uh, was helping him through lots of different things. But the the important point was never become too reliant on uh, the plumbing and electricity. He said there will be a day when you'll have the the plumbing and you'll have the electricity in your huts that you can touch the wall and it'll turn on lights. But that's never Lance Richardson. Ready. That was the um, they saw our day. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm sharing from. Okay. So okay, yeah. never become too reliant on that because there will be a day when all of that will be gone. And so uh, instead of relying on that, start becoming so self-reliant that you can go help others when tragedy strikes and things and, and to, to lose yourself in order to find yourself. And so he, he took all of that learning and he's like, family, let's just do it. Let's, let's get outside of ourselves and let's actually go on this vacation and lose ourselves in order to actually find ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. And all of his kids had better relationships after that and stuff. And there's been interviews with, with some of his kids uh, fairly recently where they said, yeah, it, it absolutely changed our lives, uh, trying to, to look at it in a Zion-like principle rather than being so caught up in our Nintendos and, and different things that we actually go on vacation to serve, not just to uh, relax from our, our right. Babylon. <laughs> our Babylon work. Yeah. <laughs> and we dabble on play so we can go back and dabble on work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pisa, that's perfect. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the Abraham story here on page 42. So this one's a, a really interesting one where uh, Father Abraham, as he's growing up, uh, you know, I think there's a little bit of conflicting stories because some uh, point that it's Tara that does this and some point that it's Nimrod that does this, but um, that uh abraham's left in charge of the idols to watch them oh, so weird. <laughs> but like that um uh, comes back and all of the idols have destroyed each other and <laughs> how did this happen oh the big one did it 
And obviously they know that it wasn't because <laughs> idols can't even do that. And so it, it brings about this really important point that idolatry doesn't have any fruits uh, in and of itself. It can't save, it can't redeem, it can't perform miracles or anything. But yet um, yet we put people in charge of it in order to, to take care of it. And, and it creates a whole economy in and of itself. And it's very mysterious too, because they don't even believe in their idols. They know yeah. they can't do anything. Exactly. And so how do we do that uh, today in our own kind of culture in, in Babylon? And um, kind of a follow-up story to that is that Father Abraham, um, he was also in charge of the fields. So uh, they didn't have farm implements at that time uh, that hadn't been invented yet in the history of the world. And so um, every time that they would plant seeds, the crows would come and... Uh, and pick them off and they had like dire famines in all the lands uh, they would hire all of their youth to stand in the fields and chase off all of the uh, the crows and the, the different predatory birds that would come and eat up all the seeds but father abraham was the one that invented the the, the machine uh, to to go behind an, an animal and actually bury the seeds uh, for for like the mass crops. I mean, everybody could do that with like their own home gardens, right? But like when you're planting <laughs> massive fields, uh, he's the one that invented the the farm implement that uh, actually did that, um, and and it changed the world because then they weren't uh, reliant upon uh, teenagers chasing the birds away and and upon waters washing away the 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 seeds before they could actually germinate and sprout and everything, and so. Father Abraham, I think, is is a great um, story for us to to learn about idolatry and the true purpose of Zion. Uh, when we are connected with God, He will give us revelation on how to build our Zions and how to thrive, uh, rather than uh, just relying on the the idolatry itself. So, anyway, like how how does that apply to to us today? How does that story help us? How can we? Um, better make use of these uh, stories and traditions that, that we have of our patriarchs and things. So this whole time I've been thinking, here we all are, all over the world, and we know this, but we can't come together and work that way so well, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess part of it is we kind of need to bring others into it in the areas that we live and change right. that part of our world. That is so hard to do. I've tried. They think but I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's through, through talking. I think it's more through example yeah. and maybe like I had a project. Okay. So I think I've talked about this before. Um, I saw some women on Glenn Beck one time when, and they were going over and helping all the Christians um, giving aid and all this. And so I did a humanitarian thing, a uh, drive in our ward. I just, I just did it on my own and we ended up getting 300 pounds. We all got together. I had donations. I actually put it on Facebook and I had people sending me, um, what I wanted, um, and what I needed. And then we all got together friends in the Relief Society room and put together these packets and then mailed them to the ladies to take over to um, the Middle East. And I'm just saying, like I drew those people in by doing that. 
Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a lady, she makes thermal cookers called hope sacks and she takes them to Africa and she draws people in. And so I think you do it by drawing people in, not by talking to them. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a good point. And I love that doing. Um, mm-hmm. I listened to a very inspiring man in his 90s with his wife who lived in New Zealand, who moved to India in order to help some of the farmers who were at that time actually committing suicide to rebuild the land and to be able to become self-sufficient. And he was on fire and an old man, and he never went back to his home in New Zealand, but he always, he said something that really stuck with me. He says, instead of worrying and focusing on what's wrong out there, he said, just be the solution. Mm -hmm. That is so powerful. We don't worry. We don't say, oh, look at what that is. Look at that Babylon. Look at that Babylon. But actually just be the solution. And um, so that that really impacted me. And I remember that. Um, The other thing, back when I was in my community, in California, I had a lot of infrastructure there because I'd lived there for a long time. And I had often worked for wealthy families and some Hollywood people in the Brentwood, Bel Air, Marina Del Rey areas. But with the traffic, it was just getting so much harder. There were no good times anymore that I could like zip in and zip out. So I started shifting my work to my community and working in such a way that if people couldn't afford to hire a private chef, I would like cook for five families and they could divide the food. Or I would teach cooking classes and teach them how they could, you know, it was, it was like teaching a school of lost arts. Women would sit in the kitchen and they would go, oh, and they would start remembering, you know, oh, this is how it smells and this is how it sounds. And you're just really remembering those lost arts and skills. And my vision before I was spirited away to Utah, my vision, which I was beginning to organize was rather than getting the whole community to have like pockets of light in the community. In other words, gathering like-minded people. They would come to my kitchen, we would get inspired, we would ask, we would all talk about what, you know, Nellie has lemons that she cannot possibly use. Mariko has plums that she doesn't know what to do with. And organizing in such a way that even if there was someone that wanted to learn baking skills, you know, create a scholarship fund for that person to go to Europe and to learn those lost arts and bring those skills back to the community. So this was what I was beginning to organize just as I got spirited away. But that to me is it's similar to what you're saying where you begin with where you are. And then you begin, like I said, connecting these little connecting these dots of light in the community and just build on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. So like talking about the the very bottom of page 44, um, 
where it says that the prophets therefore speak both of the spontaneous exodus from Babylon on the eve of its destruction and of a gradual premeditated exit before that time. Mm. And so we have lots of different scriptural examples of both. But as we are starting to understand this specific aspect of Babylon, how have you felt the Lord uh, preparing you? Do you feel that it's a more of a gradual process or is it's like cold turkey? I'm shutting off the power bill tomorrow <laughs> kind of thing. Like how, how do you wake up to uh, this sense of the culture of Babylon and how to leave it? And, and what have you felt like um, that's in store for, for you? I think I woke up a long, long time ago, even when I wasn't in the church, everybody's like, you're still a Mormon because I made sure I had a hand pump on my well like 30 years ago. And then um, I have like a soapstone tulakivi. They're from Finland. It's a stone that keeps the heat in. And then I have um, like as its own base. And then at the base of it, I have tons of copper tubing so I can heat my own water. I can pump my water into my pressure tank with a hand pump. And so I've been all these years doing this kind of weird stuff. Everybody's like, why are you doing that? Just pay the electricity bill. And I'm like, I've always known that you know, I'm going to need to live like a pioneer someday. Mm -hmm. Those are good. good skills to have. Everybody laughs at me, though. <laughs> well, I lived on a property for eight months in Oregon, remember, when I was there. And, and I learned how to go out and gather wood. And I wasn't very good at chopping it. But I could get a fire going, and i that's the only way I survived. I had arrived there, and Dan went down to California for six weeks. I had to learn. I had to keep the fire going. That was all there was. Yep. And you know, we had a well with a well pump, and I figured out right away. I was the one that said to him, we need to have a hand pump option on that. <laughs> Because we can have enough storms that the, the power would go down. It's a reminder. It's like, yeah. oh, we don't have any power. <laughs> Everybody's like, just get a generator. And I'm like, then I always say, but it's going to run out of gas. I'm like, yeah. well, just go buy more gas. And I'm like, what if you can't? You know, that's the. the <laughs> and in the winter, it's cloudy. So a yeah. solar generator is not helpful. Yeah. I have one. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> I've tried, to, I've tried to charge it in the winter. It won't charge. There's not enough sun. Tracy, yeah. you'll need yeah. to um, type what you you said, the soapstone Tula something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to see what that is. It's um, It's like a family member <laughs> in my house. It's they're from Finland and it's just I'll take a picture of it and show you guys next week. It what's it called? Tula Kiwi. It's just a fireplace made out of soapstone, but it has benches and a place for you to warm your wood and it has a cooktop, a bake oven, and it'll keep my house warm. And then the stone, soapstone will um 
retain the heat for like up to 24 hours. So you build a fire and then it radiate heats your house, even after the fire's out. And then once, once the fire's out, you've got it hot enough to cook. So you have to really plan how you're doing laundry and how you're doing, like you have to do laundry in the middle of the night when the water's super hot, you know. Sounds like what they have in Russia. Yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. But okay. it's just made out of gray soapstone. It's massive. Um, like when Katie was a baby, that's when I put it in. Like they cut a giant hole in my floor and put a foundation and <laughs> wheelbarrows going in and out of my house with dirt. It was pretty funny. And it that's was winter amazing. when we were doing it. There's this giant open hole for all the rodents to come in. <laughs> I went to a property in California where the people live um, on the land. They're not completely self-sufficient. They still have to import some food, but they're using permaculture principles where they're starting, they've got their fruit trees and everything. And they are so isolated that they, they give little conferences, but they always say, please don't come if you're sick because we're not around other people and we get sick really easily when we're around you guys. <laughs> so I went out there one time and they had something similar in these little, they would make houses out of mud. They were so beautiful. You, the minute you walked in, you felt different energy than when you walk into a, a house with electricity. It was something so comforting and um, they had these radiant little things where you could just feed twigs to it and it would radiate over the whatever kind of clay they made it out of. And you could just sit there in the winter time and just stay so comfortable. It was the type of place you just want to curl up and take a nap. Yeah, they've got those. Uh, those were, <clears throat> there's a little, it's called a rocket stove. Those were developed here in Cottage Grove. At it Apple was a rocket Beacon. stove. That yeah, you just feed twigs to them. You just, just put in little pine cones, and boy, I've got an old, old one, and it does jet up like a rocket once it gets in that. It's just in a bucket. It's really little. Mm -hmm. and those are great to just gather little tiny things, and you can cook your oh, meal. That's my style. I'm more the gatherer than the wood chopper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry. So I one thing. Upon, oh, sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. I was just going to say one thing that I started doing in 2021 um, was I started teaching preparedness classes and I just did it and I would do it on Zoom. I go to the church and I would do it on Zoom and I do it live and then I'd send out the recording, but I started getting people that weren't members of the church. And then when I moved to Idaho, I didn't do it. And I, I keep thinking, I didn't always have very good turnout and it was a little frustrating, but I think I'm going to start doing it again at my house and sending them out and doing just things. It's just doing things like that, that building a community, you know, not just with members of the church. So mm -hmm. we all need to come up with something we're going to do this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that we have a action, a call to action, not just a talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I've got like you, lots of things swarming from this chapter. Like, oh my gosh, I need to really get going on this. Um, um, oh, looks like Tracy just left. You were going to yeah, read some of the stuff in the um, 
chat. Yeah, I sorry for not. <laughs> Sometimes I have the chat pulled up right away, and I I totally forget about it and stuff. But I wanted to to kind of close out on on Heidi's question there, um, where the Amish people are self reliant. Would we have to become like that to get out of our dependence on Babylon? So how would you answer that? And and how do we how do we create like actionable goals like Alethea is talking about to um, to really get this in in action? Let the the inspiration that that we might be feeling right now and and actually get some progress in that direction rather than just okay yeah that was cool uh, next chapter <laughs> yeah that's such an individual journey I think maybe the first thing would be ask yourself where at what's my weakest link you know where am I the most vulnerable or what skills am I the most lacking and maybe start there mm -hmm. yeah like one of the things that um that really popped out to me as we were reading or whatever uh, was that comment that I, I made earlier um, of an inspiration of go to work each day with somebody in mind that you are earning money for that person kind of a thing rather than just the the regular rigmarole and, and stuff and um, uh, uh, like Heidi's question here of uh, getting out of my dependence on Babylon and and really striving to deeply connect even though like, because I have my own debts and different things, like I'm full on in, in slavery, right, with uh, the, the Babylon culture and stuff. So it's not like I can just all of a sudden cold turkey leave unless everything shuts down. <laughs> but um, to to totally change my mindset uh, of while I'm in servitude or, or slavery and okay, so I still need to go to work, but I'm going to do it with a whole different purpose in mind so that I can actually leave it spiritually before it manifests physically kind of a thing that's beautiful Cameron I think that's where every change begins is in the heart and with the mm -hmm. spirit and in in coming from that place everything every step you take will be a joy it won't be like oh my gosh I don't know how to do this or oh dear I'm going to worry about that or, or I'm afraid of this it's going to be a joy because you're you're taking each step from the heart Mm -hmm. And it'll be a journey that's that's for you. It's between you and the Lord. Yeah. I think a lot of Babylon is just being on autopilot and not being cognizant of your choices, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that every single thing that you do is purposeful, planned out, and inspired from, from the Spirit. Right. And so that's true consecration. That. Yeah. When we want to consecrate our every moment to mm. his purposes mm -hmm. yeah that's what's fundamentally changed for me from from this chat that we've had this morning it's always interesting kind of the the titles of the chapters i'm like okay culture of babylon sure but then i'm like oh my goodness this applies to me cameron wake up wake up <laughs> 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 like sometimes i i forget how easy it is to slip back into to babylonian principles right but yet I think that I'm awake and I'm, I'm good. And then, then like these little chapters, nope, I'm fully in it <laughs> kind of a thing. And so uh, I don't know, I, this little tiny book has been such a, an inspiration. I, it, it pained me to go so slow through our, <laughs> our chapters and stuff, but I am so grateful that we did because each chapter has um, plenty to, to consider and, and ponder on in our own individual lives. Like you said, it's, it's such a, 
individual journey. We have to uh, recognize how Satan has enslaved us with that specific topic and work to work our way out of it. Sometimes we need to deliver. Sometimes it's going to be overnight. Sometimes it's a, a gradual process and we can uh, change our attitude through it kind of a thing. But. Right. And, and it's sobering to consider too, Cameron, um, but also something to pat ourselves on the back over is that we were all born into slavery. We were born into this system. So we grew up thinking that this is, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. So that we're even having this conversation is, you know, showing that we're actually waking up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And now, just like every other example in the scriptures of people who are in bondage, making that part of our prayers, praying for deliverance Mm. from our slavery. Yes, praying for all of ourselves and all of our brothers and sisters. I know I recently, like you said, the awful situation that the Book of Mormon saw when they saw our time, the the Book of Mormon authors, to be able to see that, but to still move forward with joy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know I recently told my husband, I just want to leave Babylon. And he goes, I don't want to not have a toilet. (laughs) (laughs) That was the first thing he said. I go, we can have a toilet, you know, and I just realized it wasn't time to talk about that with him and he's not there. And the other thing was, yeah, I did tell him we can have a toilet, but can we really have a toilet we're used to now? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I just, I don't know. Yeah. Does that mean you have to move? According to this chapter, (laughs) sure sounds like it. (laughs) I know. Cameron, start our community. Find us that. Let's let's be fringe. (laughs) Yeah. And everybody will be worried about us, huh? (laughs) I know that's the I think the hardest part of Babylon is just thinking or the not wanting to be perceived as the weird ones, you know, like we want to leave it but at the same time it's like but can we like our families are going to be thinking we're weird like (laughs) it's just so it that's one of the hardest things and we've seen that uh, the greatest example old testament right where they're carried away into babylon this is the literal babylon story and they have three chances to get out uh you have the first one um with now remind me it's provable Nehemiah leads the first one out, right? Nehemiah, uh, Zerubbabel, and uh, and Ezra lead the three different groups out. But um, after after the three shots, it's it, it's over, and a lot of people stayed because they didn't know if they could actually do it, if they could survive right. inside. And think about Lot's wife, and then think about the children of Israel, how they began to miss their slavery. Yeah. Okay, well, you just recalled one one of my favorite stories in the Book of Mormon, and now maybe I know how it applies to us, and that's the people of Limhi. Mm -hmm. Remember, they tried to leave. They were in bondage, and they tried to leave, and all their men were slaughtered. They tried by war. The women were lamenting, so they tried again, and they were all slaughtered. Three times, they were just decimated, and then they bore their burdens um, and the Lord lightened, lightened their burdens. And then he just led them out. 
So is that our, is that our key? I, I've thought about that. I'm like, how does that apply to, to me? Yeah. But maybe that's how it, like, because here we've said, I've never put that together with, we are in bondage. How yeah. do, how do I leave this? And maybe it's the Lord showing us because he told him what to do. Right. So maybe that's what it is. Kind of what you said is you do it spiritually, but maybe relying on the Lord to show us how to do it. Um, about a month ago, after we came back from Brazil, um, my husband said to me, I feel like we need to buy some land on the other side of the temple. It's all rural and not built up or anything, but there's some really big homes and big property. And so we actually went looking and there wasn't a lot. And actually last weekend, I did call a lady in our ward that's a realtor. And she's showing me these $500,000 homes. I'm like, I don't want an HOA. You know, my husband said, we need to have some chickens and cause we can't, we have an HOA here. And, and I'm like, I just don't want a five. Like I told my husband, I'm happy if we buy a piece of land, we can build a big shed, put our stuff in storage and live in our camper while we build a home. Really all we need is a kitchen, a family room, a, a bathroom, maybe not with a working toilet, <laughs> a plumbed toilet, a working toilet, but not a composting plumbed. toilet. Right? I know. I know. I've looked at those for years and in a bedroom. And then, and then as we have this resources, then we can add on to it. And that's been in my heart and like nothing, nothing, nothing. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to sell our home. Our home is huge. I felt like the Lord led us to it. It's huge. It's too big for us. It's going to not only is a lot of resources to purchase, it's a lot of resources that are just kind of wasted. We have four bedrooms. We have five, but one of them is food storage. <laughs> And it's just huge. And so I really would love to sell our home. <coughs> you know, I told my husband, I'd be happy living in this camper. And he was like, yeah, not me, but I would be happy just living in the camper. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Like I, I've never like the story, the Limhi story and the, the Babylon story, uh, yeah. Nehemiah, Ezra, Ezra, like I've never once put those together. And so me like, neither going to be my my one of my two studies I have a, another one that's like oh my gosh some powerful inspiration yesterday in the temple that I want to do a scripture study on but like that one of of comparing those two groups and and being bookends of each other um and how to actually come out of Babylon it wasn't until you brought that up that I realized that story came into my mind and it was like I, I love that story yeah but I've never applied it to me and it wasn't until you told that that I'm like, oh, that, uh, that applies to us now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so here's like just the most random thing. Sorry to take us like totally off topic, but this no, one do. stood off uh, to me in uh, the temple yesterday as I was scripture studying. And I was like, oh my goodness, what the heck? So uh, DNC 98. Um, so how many uh, have know where this scripture is found, right? That, uh, Elijah will come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, right? Like and Malachi. Yeah. Malachi is the, the first prophet uh, who mm -hmm. is actually quoting from second Kings and it's in every single canon of scripture. It's in Doctrine and Covenants. It's in Book of Mormon. It, like it's the one that branches over everything, but I had never quite understood, or I didn't even know this one existed in DNC 98 
And what it says, it goes on, the next verse explains it. And it says, that is to say that the what heart- What verse is it? Uh, Do you remember? Remember where it's at on the page because <laughs> I was reading it in the temple. But um, um, give me a give me a keyword and I'll look up. Yeah, so DNC ninety eight, and it's within. I think it's like uh -huh. around verse ten or eleven, maybe twelve. Mm -hmm. I don't know, somewhere right around there. I could probably look it up too. But um, I was gonna say, give me a keyword, and I can just do a word search on that. Yeah, chapter. so uh, hearts of the children, turn the hearts. Let's see, yeah, I can probably bring it up and screen share it here too. But um, this one really stood out to me that I was like, holy cow, have I misunderstood this my entire life? Um, so this is in, was in verse three. Uh -huh, yeah, so here it is in 16 and 17. I was a little okay. bit. Off. But um, so this is in Couched. Um, they haven't built the, the Kirtland Temple yet. They're, they've just started the school of the prophets and everything and missouri has happened so people are starting to uh start <laughs> getting uh, chastised and, and persecuted there in missouri and this is when this re revelation is received but this verses 16 and 17 is very kind of like not relevant to the rest of the not apparently relevant to the rest of the the section here uh, because he's like saying um how we need to support the, the government of the land and, and let due process and everything. And then he gives the law of basically um, uh, the law of war, like when you are justified to go to war, etc. But here, 16 and 17, so I'm sure it's chiastic in nature because this one breaks from uh, the rest of the, the pattern of, of the section. But 16 and 17, what does 17 really give us that the other references to it don't it says therefore renounce war and proclaim peace and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children and again the hearts of the jews unto the prophets and the prophets unto the jews lest i come and smite the whole earth with a curse and all flesh be consumed before me i was like wait what jews and prophets like, how is that with the hearts of the children to the fathers, etc.? And why is that encouched in this section when they're talking about um, the, the difficulties in Missouri? Like, it just is like rocking my world here. And um, the footnotes to it go to uh, DNC section two, when that's when it's revealed um, in this dispensation, the, the Elijah quote and everything. But this one isn't about Elijah. This one never mentions Elijah. This one is a direct commandment and uh, an admonition to the people of Kirtland to start doing it themselves and to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, that is to say, the hearts of the Jews to the prophets and the prophets to the Jews. I'm like, whoa, this is like blowing my mind. Anyway. What yeah. DMC was that? I've got the verses. Yeah, 98. 98. Thank oh. you, Cameron. I need to go to my appointment now. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Lisa. Yeah, and, and I don't necessarily want to like expound on it and stuff, but uh, anyway, just. Oh, no, I want you to. I do. <laughs> I want to talk about it. Well, are you, and that I've kind of wondered, I've wondered as I've seen that phrase, hearts of the children to their fathers. You know, I think we all think, you know, our minds go to, 
all that's um, temple work and, and whatnot. And uh, which not saying it's not by any means, but um, I, I wondered if like father, like if that was referring more to the fathers, the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, and just, I mean, because I don't know, just the importance of what they taught. And I mean, all the, the covenants there, right? That ultimately save us all. I don't know. I am rambling, but I would just love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Because that's when that's awesome. When our temple president uh, did a devotional, I got to be invited because Cameron and Terry work in the temple. Um, but he explained it, that whole thing about the turning the hearts of the father to the children and children to the fathers. He said the first part is our, our fathers like from the Old Testament, our patriarchs and stuff to the children. But he said, then the next part is the children turn their hearts to the fathers. It's talking about their ancestors. Um, yeah. So if you do a harmony on all of those different verses, right? So we have the, the Malachi version, we have the New Testament versions, we have Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, like seriously, put them all side by side, and they're all very different. They all highlight different little things, and they have different nuances to them. It isn't like a, a strict translation across all of them. Um, it, it's very powerful when you were studying out the, the nuances there. But here, what do you remember, Mother, what question I asked you on the way home from the temple last night? <laughs> yes, I do. And I've been thinking about that, too. Because, I mean, we could go on for like hours on, on this, but it's really starting to become apparent to me um, the, the latter-day fulfillment of this, where the, the spirit of Elijah, like right with the Passover Seder, like they, they leave a cup for Elijah, and we always kind of pigeonhole it saying, oh, Elijah's come, you missed out, sorry, Jews. But, but really, has Elijah come to the Jews? And I, th I think, this is my own personal opinion, that there's two comings of Elijah. Like he came to Ephraim, but he also needs to come to Judah and that they're still awaiting that fulfillment of that. And um, what does, so here's something that I heard a lot with the, the past conference that uh, Amy was there, right? The, let's see, nobody else was, but um, the, the day in ancient Israel, we heard it a lot there. I've heard it over the pulpit a lot lately that when we like, what does it look like when we finally get the, the gospel turned to the Jews? You know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But many times I've heard this said that it doesn't necessarily require that they become baptized. Like we're not trying to like force the ordinances down their throat. It's about, um, about turning their hearts to their fathers in, in a true and proper way when they already have uh, some deep good traditions on it and stuff like so what does that mean that we help them offer again in righteous or offer a sacrifice again in righteousness unto the lord the sons of levi right and and how does that all work out and to me um as we were studying uh, the 16 and 17 yesterday it's about the fact that how do we get them the priesthood without necessarily like making them Mormons, right? Like how do we 
because um, uh, I'm going on so many different topics and, and tangents here, sorry. But um, like Linda Cherry, she quoted that thing, right? Where in 1830, there was a group of rabbis that were seeking the priesthood. And they knew that it would be found within the tribe of Ephraim. And so they sent out an emissary and, and he eventually got killed. Uh, but he was traveling through Europe, trying to find somebody from the tribe of Ephraim that claimed to have the priesthood restored. And in 1830, the priesthood was restored, but they never did get it because that emissary was killed. And so what does, how, how can we possibly restore the actual priesthood keys to the Jews and turn their hearts to their fathers without necessarily our, uh, what we typically think is the way that we do it? Oh, we have to get them baptized we have to get them through the temple and all this kind of stuff and many times even our our church leaders today have said and uh given that that thing it, it's not necessarily about dunking them in the water it's about turning their hearts and so anyway my my brain is just like flooded with all of these different questions it's like a half-baked study at this point but like my my goal this week is to really harmonize all of those different scriptures, the Malachi prophecy about Elijah, and really pinpoint what it looks like in order to turn the hearts of the Jews to their fathers and the fathers to the Jews. And, okay. Yeah. So I have something for you. As you were saying that, it reminded me, Moroni came to Joseph, told him about where the gold plates were, and he recited that. Yeah. So I looked up the account and he actually quotes it probably where you're thinking acts three mm -hmm. for Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord, your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul, which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. So, okay. It's not the ver It's not the one that you were talking about the hearts of the children, mm -hmm. but it, it, it's a word link to that prophet, to the prophet, what prophet? Probably Malachi says the hearts of the fathers. Here we're learning that there's Moses said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord God raise up. Yeah. Then he quoted Joel and you guys know this one. Um, President Hinckley quoted it in conference in October, 2001. Um, and said it was fulfilled, Joel 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord shall come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord has said. And in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. That's the interesting part in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Um, so anyways, yeah, I was just so I got on the church's website and just looked at this. He also quoted the 11th chapter of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. That's the stem of Jesse will judge in righteousness. The knowledge of about God will cover the earth in the millennium. The Lord will raise an ensign and gather Israel compared to second Nephi 21. Um, 
anyway, I just, let's see, there's also Malachi. I'm just saying it just brought me back to that because Elijah repeated it to him three times. And what are we learning in Hebrew about yeah. repetition? That's a, so it's not good. It's not better. Three times would be best, right? Mm -hmm. the, the greater. Um, so it doesn't answer your question. How do we get the Jews? <laughs> but it was just kind of reminded me that that was given to Joseph, that same thing. And there were it, other scriptures. It is so, I think there is just so much packed in there that goes over so many heads. I know my own often, but I, I mean, cause yeah, like what you just quoted and how they tie together with those word links and stuff. I, I, I kind of like your, and, and how it goes along with what you're saying, Cameron, of like, I don't, I've kind of come to a similar conclusion of like, I don't think how it goes to the Jews is what we envision. It's not like this. Yeah. We're going to go baptize them all into the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's like, no, it's like, they get, yeah, I, I just, I don't know what it exactly looks like, but I, I don't think it's what maybe a lot of people think. And, and it is that priesthood, you know, and, and they have, they have a, a right to it and like what that is going to look like and how it's going to proceed. I hope it doesn't close a lot of minds as we see it, because, you know, we're going to start crying that it's not, you know, that's not, that's not the proper way. That's not authority or whatever. But I, I, I think it's so exciting to think of, and I want you to share what you learn and all the insights because I've had these kind of similar thoughts going through my mind. And especially like, as it talks about, and you know, Joseph Smith has mentioned and others, I don't know where to find it, but like uh, talking about like the sacrifices being reinstated and things like that, that like, I, I remember when I first heard that, I was like, no, that's, no. that's not doctrinal. That can't happen because that was done away. That's not what we do in the church. And I was so close-minded because it didn't fit my paradigm. But now, like, as I'm learning, I'm like, oh my gosh, we just don't even get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have, I have some thoughts, as you said, are we all going to baptize them? And I know Cameron said it, but when you said it, are we all going to baptize them into the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Not to sound blasphemous, but it's not all about the church of Jesus it's Christ. It's not Christ. exactly. You know what it is. And so, you know, my mind just goes, this is, so when we were in Hebrew and we had him, what was his name? Jason. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. He said, reach out to the Jews. Yeah. And one thing I didn't say was um, when our oldest son was studying Hebrew, I think I may have told you guys this, he had to do some extra credit and we were in park city and he was at BYU and he was staying with us. He goes, Hey, I need to do this extra credit. Will you guys come with me? And we go to Shabbat. And I brought up, I, I'm sure I told you guys that how much, how wonderful it was. And I was like, there's so much we could learn. And Jason had said, you just need to reach out to the Jews. So maybe it's not about baptizing them into the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The church, the church is a vehicle. And that vehicle is to get us to the church of the firstborn. So yeah. maybe exactly. that's what it is. Yes. Yeah. 
So here's some questions that I was posing to my mom last night is, uh, first off, how was the priesthood restored in this restoration? Was it received before baptism or after baptism? Because like traditionally, right, we have to be baptized before we can advance to the age and, and finally get the priesthood. But the priesthood was restored before baptism was so that they could actually perform the baptism. Who was it restored under? It was restored by translated beings who had the authority to do so. And will it be restored in the same way to the Jews under the hands of a translated being? But in order to receive it, there has to be the curse is lifted, right? I mean, that was the same pattern that it was for us, the Ephraimites, that the curse had to be lifted before the priesthood could be restored to them. And so how do we reverse a curse? Like covenant curses, because like the Jews took upon them the curse um, and they said to our third and fourth generations, like we'll accept the curse for, for crucifying Christ. And, and they merited that. And how do we remove curses by repentance and blessing? And how can we repent and bless? How can we turn their hearts to their fathers it's not necessarily about baptizing them into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's about actually turning hearts. And once we can turn a heart, then, uh, just like we, we say um, that Christ can't return to a people who aren't ready to receive him, like uh, Elijah and the keys of, of, of priesthood and, and restoration can't return until there's a people ready to actually receive him who have, have worked and become cleansed of it. I think it comes down to helping them turn their hearts, helping them to repent of said curse and and merit that. And I think that that's done through Davidic type covenants, through the sons and servants, through the kings and queens of the Gentiles that can can help bring that about and facilitate that that turning of the heart. Um, I, I We just kind of, like uh, Amy said, like we just pigeonhole and put ourselves in this box of this is the only true church of, <laughs> and we have to, get people in the water kind of a thing but like you said about the church of the firstborn i think that that's a huge part of, of this whole process yeah karen oh it's gonna be I, so amazing what we see holy cow i, I think so too i've been i just listening to you guys i think this whole discussion has been so inspired and the lord has been personally putting it into our hearts and our minds that this is the way to go about it and i've been pondering your same question about how do you go about getting the children of Israel to learn about these things. And honestly, I think I've come to the conclusion that the Lord is going to put it into their hearts and their minds yes. themselves, just as he's done it for us. And that yes. I think if you go and read the story of Abinadi and his preaching to the priests and the wicked King Noah, he spells this out so well. And that, like you've said, turning the hearts to um the children turning their hearts to the fathers and that turning is, is is synonymous with repentance with change well changing from what changing from that the law of moses is salvific for them when reality no what abinadi is saying no it's necessary but that's not what saves you it's what christ saves you and that's what the fathers knew that having christ in your heart is what's going to save you and the children need to come to that same conclusion that the fathers knew already and that because that's how you gain salvation and exaltation and your ascension and that's just sort of the things that i've been pondering about and the way it's going about is that when we come to that knowledge of we need to learn about the holy prophets 
i.e. the Old Testament, the scriptures of what these prophets already knew and we're trying to teach them, as we come to them personally and ask the Lord to give that knowledge to us, they they will too. There's like this harmonic resonance between that's going on in the world right now, I believe. Oh my gosh, that is so spot on. And yeah. and I think that like hits the the point of like, it is it is God that turns those hearts, you know? I mean, obviously we we play a role in everything, but like the power that the spirit has to, to, to do that for people to, to uh, change those hearts. And it's again, just going to be so astounding to witness. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, are we already watching this? Because there is a huge movement in yeah. Judaism yeah. switching to messianic Jews. Yeah. There's yeah. a huge movement. Yep. And there's so much power there. Yeah. Yeah. So is that the repentance? That's the turning their hearts to Christ, right? Yes. And so I'm wondering. Because I think Christians now, you know, Christians for for a long time have refused kind of to look at the Old Testament as like, well, that's the old covenant. Well, actually, no, the prophets had the full, the fullness of the gospel. Nephi says they had it. They had the plain and precious gospel. And even though they had the law of Moses, it's said in the Book of Mormon over and over and over again, they go to all these different people, Alma's preaching all these people, they have the scriptures, they have everything that they need, and yet they're relying on the lowerness of it, the lower law of Moses. And so we need to also go back to those whole older prophets and do what the Book of Mormon is telling the house of Israel to do. So, yeah. Holy cow. I love it. Like what you said, uh, Amy, just prior was um, about, anyway, it unlocked the rest of 98 for me because um, like I said, I I don't get how uh, verse 16 and 17 really tie into the rest of 98. But um, as he goes on to to say um, that, behold, this is the law that I gave unto my servant Nephi and thy fathers, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, and all my ancient prophets and apostles. And again, this is the law that I gave unto my ancients, that they should not go out into battle against any nation, etc. Like, he's trying to tie in what the fathers knew and, and how to apply that so that Ephraim could learn it, learn the lesson, but that once we learn it, then we need to go teach the Jews how we did it so that they can do it as well. Wow. And um, anyway, that... 98 guys i think that's gonna unlock us um but it's kind of like like when i was reading in the temple i was like this is this is it but i didn't understand i was like why does this tie into the rest of this and everything but holy cow like i think that there's uh, you know not to to go fringe (laughs) as we all do right but um that's okay i was not trying to be blasphemous (laughs) but like there's such a so, so Satan has his counterfeits, right? Um, we have energy healing, right? Energy work. And there, there's the good and there's the bad. But the, the bad is kind of like overshadowing all of the, the good that can be done with it because people get off on, on tangents and, and go in, in weird ways. But, but in the world of, of working and, and generational healing, it has been restored to the, the tribe of Ephraim in powerful, powerful ways that we know how to cleanse our generations and we know how to take what 98 is saying and really go through and, and heal. 
And I think that that's one of the, the mighty powers that we can then apply and, and help the Jews actually turn their hearts by actual healing and, um, you know, <laughs> talk about modalities and all this kind of stuff. But like, um, if, if Satan's trying so hard to counterfeit it, there must be a true principle. And, you know, like uh, anybody that's been in my book, club, <laughs> we, we've, we've uh, talked about this extensively with foreordinations and, and things of how, what does it look like to, to be truly applying the, the material from Isaiah and, and becoming kings and queens and cleansing the lines of the iniquities and curses and how do we do that and and it's it's just on the cusp of of just uh going to the the tribe of judah i think i think that we have a, a major important mission in that i don't know <laughs> so, uh, so i'm thinking of i'm thinking of general conference it was a major theme um just a little different but what you're talking about in section 98 I always just clue into the peace and not war, right? And haven't, isn't that what we've been taught? Isn't yeah. that what conference was about was just love everyone and have, and we've been, especially since 2020, 2021 with all of the divisiveness that's happened. So in a way, do we have a prejudice? I mean, you've kind of talked about it against the Jews. Yeah, totally. And so is that an underlying message? Like we automatically think Antifa, BLM, transgender, LGBTQ rights, whatever. We think all of that. Yeah. But to bring it to section 98, is that a little bit of the underlying message that we're being told? Think we think so. the big stuff, but maybe they're talking about something deeper. Mm hmm well, well many, everything's in layers, right? <laughs> yep. How many of us have been just kind of drawn to the Jewish people lately, mm -hmm. wanting to learn the way of the Jews and stuff? I think it's all part of our awakening to, to get something done here. I think we have. So like um the few weeks ago when we were talking with adrian larson and the, and the project to to translate the book of mormon and everything like uh, seriously that was like game changing for me it was when a lot of different things in my life like finally like when you put the the piece of the puzzle in and it's like whoa <laughs> that one like it fundamentally transformed uh many things in my life to to finally flip me around to the the 180 of um kind of what my personal thing is like where I need to be going and, and my trajectory and stuff like that but like I think that all of us are, are very individually coming to the same realization and there's going to be Jews that are coming to the same realization and then we're going to have this amazing um thing whatever that looks like I don't a meeting of the minds and, yeah. <laughs> and repenting and yeah, when, yeah. We, when we get this all done and you know we see a lot of people turning to it you know like rob k and, and his uh messages and stuff oh my goodness um so rob k recommended that i read uh jewish meditations it is transformational oh my gosh everybody needs to read it do it uh, it's not zooming in on me but uh jewish meditations by uh, uh let me type it in <laughs> because i've got my camera set so that it doesn't autofocus on me Jewish meditations. Is it by Aria Kaplan? 
Yep. Maria Kaplan. So he's hey. already passed away. He had an untimely death, but his work into the manner of the Jews and Rob K said that that's where he got a lot of his information and training as a, as a, a Jewish uh, kind of upbringing. He's like Araya Kaplan. You have to get to know his works. And this is my first book um, uh, reading his works or whatever, but oh my gosh, guys, I'm only halfway through it. It's amazing <laughs> to say the least. And then um, thank you. Greg Kroon. Oh, okay, I just bought one of the two yep. on thrift books for $11. <laughs> There's yeah. one more left. You can run over and get it. <laughs> yeah, I've got most of his his books. I just never have uh, actually gotten time to read them and stuff. But the, the spirit the other night woke me up at like 2.30 in the morning and is like, go get that book off the shelf and get it going. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> I was super groggy reading it. And I'm like, wait a minute, what is happening here? <laughs> like, this book is amazing. How have I not picked it up before? Um, so uh, what was I saying? Greg Kroon also said that in order to, to fully understand uh, the Kabbalah properly, uh, you need to go to Leonora Leet. Uh, let me type hers in as well. Leonora Leet and her books on uh, the Kabbalistic uh, approach to, to Jewish mysticism and stuff. Um, and anyway, I'm, I haven't yet read that one. I got to finish this one by, <laughs> by Kaplan, but, um, anyway, I'm glad that there's a lot of other Jewish nerds that are feeling <laughs> like they need to, to get going on stuff. This, this push to learn Hebrew and I, you know, what's amazing. I think it's this that is helping us learn how to become Kings and Queens of the Gentiles. Like it's, I, yeah, yeah. Like we, the it's for the Gentiles to rise up to their potentials. Anyways, well, and yeah, realize they're a part of the house of Israel and live up to that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's been interesting. So with the lectures on faith uh, that uh, some of our book clubs did last year, and, and the Lord was very specific, like, you need to stop here. Like, don't keep on your, your book clubs. You need, you're going to be in a different direction. And I didn't know what that meant. And so we started doing lecture or the topical guide study, which is also amazing. Like I'm, I'm still doing that, but just not um, with a, a group discussion. But now I see <laughs> why uh, the Lord is like, you're going to be busy enough. Like, don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to lead you in a totally different direction that you're not even expecting yet. But um, uh, like oh, the the Jewish thing is is first and foremost, family history work is is next. I mean, these are like battling for my time. But uh, really applying everything that we learned from, from Isaiah, from Triumph of Zion, from uh, all of the, the lectures on faith and, and the pattern that's there, understanding the Godhead in its proper context in order to start receiving these. Like every single aspect of the last couple of years of book clubs have been so methodically planned out, for me anyway. I don't know. <laughs> I'm assuming for, for y'all too, but like... Oh my gosh, the, the Lord has just led us in, in so many different uh, clear paths. And uh, I, Isaiah is kind of like the glue that holds it all together because the kings and queens, becoming kings and queens, rising up and becoming sun servant level people that can actually bring about DNC 98, turning the Jews to their fathers and the fathers to the Jews and, and helping in that process. And 
not to say like I, I feel like an important mission or whatever, but I think that there's many of us that are that have very important missions in this. And I still don't even know how on earth I'm gonna do that from Malta, Idaho, or <laughs> but like what this even looks like or the full scope of it, but the Lord is just like, be patient, I got you, read this. Now read this and and trusting in the process of of learning and growing and things. Um, but again, you say that to any family community, <laughs> you're, you're going to be <laughs> look that weird, but I can oh already see it, how it's going to play out somewhat. And how many times have you talked to Linda Cherry since we did the day in Israel? Yeah. And she's feeling that you're part of this. And I think it's going to happen through her and Jason Olson and these uh, people that you've come in contact I've with. I've had like seven different chats with different Jewish people this, this last week. And I'm just like, yeah, it seems how, how did these unfolded. even get like, they weren't even on my radar at all, but like, they just like reached out to me with different little things or whatever. And I'm like, who am I to, <laughs> to be doing this? But like, Isn't, it's all yeah. about networking and, and getting yeah. to know things. Well, just how God orchestrates that to put people in your lives that you need, you know, to accomplish whatever he has for you. So yeah, all oh, he's so good at that. Yeah. Which goes back to Isaiah, the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shoot. And I have a couple of thoughts here, but they're kind of random. But because um, as we were doing Passover uh, Thursday night, I was thinking about how, you know, Elijah's already come to, to us, but they're still setting a place for him. They're still expecting that. So if Elijah came to them, they would, they've already accepted Elijah. I mean, they're looking for that. But what a difference that could make with, you know, maybe through him, it, you know, I could, he could restore some of these things to him. That There's that thought. And then as she was reading about the Kirtland Temple, it made me wonder, is that why we lost the Kirtland Temple is because we didn't follow through on this or the earlier saints. Remember what I was uh, saying yesterday about the Kirtland Temple. Why was it so different from the restored temples that we know today with all of their different uh, specific rooms and stuff like that? And, and it was a very like aha moment when I was uh, searching and looking for that. Like, oh, the Kirtland Temple was never meant to be a Melchizedek Temple. It, it, it's an ironic temple with the ironic sacrifice. I'm like, oh, interesting. And how that plays in with the, the Jewish uh, type of things. And, and uh, because it's very much set up like the uh, Tabernacle of Moses in uh, lots of different ways. And anyway, it was just blowing my mind. <laughs> anyway, I've been thinking that as we come to help the Jewish people and stuff, I really think that we'll get that Caroline Temple back mm -hmm. for the purpose that it was supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. There's, there's lots of things that yeah. I just don't even know. And I'm like, <laughs> I feel like 
the most primary level amateur uh, grasp of the scriptures, but like with everything that the Lord's been like trying to to help us with uh, the last couple of years and, and things like Isaiah, it's, it's where it's at. And that's why it was a commandment to, to study it in the end times, right? To, to finally wake us up and get well, us that, prepared for our... That's the best thing we can do is just listen to the spirit, hear him and, yeah. and uh, follow. Which because takes us back to Isaiah and what we were saying with Babylon is that the learning to rely on the Lord for everything. And you're mm -hmm. seeing that. Yeah. Wow. I, I hate to like close our conversation. <laughs> I, I do have something at 11, but holy cow. Uh, I wanted to ask you, how do you study your scriptures in the temple? What do you do? Um. So I usually go to the temple with questions in mind that I want answered. Those rarely get answered, but at least gets me in the right sections of, of scripture to do it. So um, as, a, as a worker, uh, I always have like little like study moments, like they'll give us like 10 or 20 minutes in between different little things and stuff. So I always have a pocket set of scriptures in my um, in my coat pocket or whatever that I can just like go to the stairwell and, and start studying kind of thing. Um, but like yesterday, what uh, one really... So I was studying all of the scriptures that talked about the veil of the temple. And, and I had that little list printed up. I wanted to, to learn more about the veil. And that veil led me to something in Kirtland. And that Kirtland scripture led me to um, uh, DNC 110. And that 110, as soon as I read uh, the Elijah part of, of section 110, then it was like, wait a minute. I forgot to study DNC 98 the other day when it was revealed to me. And so I'm like, okay, so I went and studied that. And then I just had to <laughs> do all like all of these little side searches there and stuff. So I had a, a half an hour, I gave up my lunch and <laughs> I was um, in this kind of like meditative state from this book that I've been reading, Jewish meditation. And uh, so I was kind of, <laughs> it probably looked like I was just sitting there sleeping, but like, <laughs> I was like, meditating upon 98 uh given the the way that he prescribes in this book and really pondering on it and all of these scriptures started flowing in and uh really going for it so to answer your question how do i do it i always go with a question or with a specific spiritual gift that i want to gain that day and um uh like i said it's very very rarely it's with the exact thing that i'm looking for but it at least gets me in the proper place to receive whatever the Lord had for me that day, kind of thing. That's probably why you forgot your. Lecture. I was I was asking. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh huh. Yep. I was asking because I would go with kind of the same thing, and I would have a little notebook. Oh yeah. Um. After the session, and I got in trouble. Oh yeah. So I just have to be kind of more conspicuous with it. Sometimes I'll just do it in the locker itself, whatever, because. I, I get it. People, you know, we live in a day and age when people are trying to write the words of the ceremonies and publish them online and all this kind of stuff. But like, at the same time, study without a notebook, without being able to write down the promptings of the spirit is, is basically worthless. So like, if you're going to go there to study, you have to have a notebook. So I just try to do it in inconspicuous ways, I guess. <laughs> I was, I was told that I was being disruptive yeah holy cow and i so and i amazing. if i hadn't been in the celestial room i would have maybe been a little snarky and said 
really more disruptive than all the people that were laughing and talking after coming out of the session. <laughs> it's so sad. I think we we forget like what what's the point of the celestial room, right? Like that should be a place of ultimate learning. Yeah. That's and why the frantically taking notes. Oh my goodness. That's why the scriptures are sitting there. And I just had a little teeny notebook. It wasn't like, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm flipping out doing my whole scripture study here. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, thanks for sharing your insights and, and learning and all of that. It's really fun. Thank you, Cameron. Yeah, if anybody has any things during the week, email them to me and stuff. But yeah, we'll see where the study goes. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again so much. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. All right. Yeah, we'll see you all you. next week. Bye-bye.